This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Today's sermon is from Mark 11, verses 20 through 25. It is entitled, A Faith That Receives. And the question that we are going to ponder this morning is what exactly is, or maybe better put, how do we practice a faith that receives? Because we understand as we look at this passage and as we talk this morning, we're going to understand that a faith that receives is a faith that is open to all the good that God is doing, right? A faith that trusts in God's character, a faith that prays boldly, and a faith that willingly forgives those around us. And when we read our passage, you will see quickly that this is no easy passage. And so as I prepared for this sermon, as I got ready and wrestled through this passage on my own, I kept thinking about the story of Jacob. Are you familiar with the story of Jacob? If you're not, in the book of Genesis, we find one of two brothers, Jacob, his brother Esau, the sons of Isaac, and Jacob is a bit of a scoundrel. In the, in the story in Genesis, Jacob steals his brother Esau's birthright and then flees out into the desert and for years and years and years does his own thing, builds his own little kingdom and does not see his brother Esau. When we find him in the story that I'm referencing this morning, he is on the eve of being reintroduced to his brother Esau. I can only imagine, so he's about, he's, Jacob has gone and he's built his own little kingdom as his wife and his children, his wives and his children, he's brought them all with him and he's about to meet Esau and he thinks he is going to be punished, right? He thinks that Esau is so angry at him that there's no way that can be, they can be reconciled because remember, he's stolen Jacob, or Esau's birthright, And so that night, as Jacob sits alone by a fire, we learn in the story that a man comes upon him and he begins to wrestle Jacob. And Jacob, for all he knows, is in a battle to the death for his life with a stranger in the desert. But as the story goes on, we learn that Jacob is in fact wrestling with God. And as God wrestles Jacob, he quickly discovers he's not going to beat this guy. God is not going to beat our little Jacob. And so he touches Jacob's hip, he pops it out of socket, and even still, if you know the story, what does Jacob do? He doesn't let go. He continues to wrestle with God, and finally God says to Jacob, what must I do for you to let go? And he says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And what does God do? He blesses Jacob, right? He makes Jacob into the nation of Israel. That night, he gives Jacob the name Israel, which means He who has striven with God, one who has wrestled with God. So this morning, as we read this passage together, I pray that you, along with me, as we read things that are maybe hard to believe at times, that we could have a truly good God, that we could pray boldly, and that we would have the strength to forgive another, that as we wrestle with that, we would be reminded that God desires to bless us, that God wills for our good. Amen? So let's turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11 verses 20 through 25, and we can stand for the reading of God's word. Would that be all right? So Mark 11, starting in verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Praise be to God. All right, let us pray. Father, I ask this morning as we come before you and we come before your word, Lord, and we seek to know more of your character and your love, Lord, as we seek to offer our own bold prayers and we wrestle with you, Lord, that, that we would feel your presence and your blessing. Lord, I pray that you would speak not of me but through me, Lord, and that your will would be done. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. All right, now before, as we kick into this passage, if we're really going to understand it, there's a little bit of work that we have to do beforehand. So we're going to turn back just a few verses to verse 12, and let me set the context, and we'll read these verses together. So when we come upon Jesus in chapter 11, he is entering into Jerusalem. This is Palm Sunday. This is the triumphal entry. And if you're familiar with the gospel stories, there's something that you'll notice about them, which is in the beginning of the gospel stories, things are moving very quickly. We're going through years, very rapid succession. But at the end of each gospel, and Mark is no different, everything begins to slow. And so when we reach chapter 11, we're only going to have a series of days until the end of this gospel. And as things slow, things intensify. And so when we read these verses, I want want you to, to have this mindset. You're a disciple, and you have been walking with Jesus for years and years. And now, Jesus is just going crazy, it seems. He curses a fig tree, and what we're about to find out, he flips the tables in the temple. And I want you to have in your mind what it must have been like, how jarring it must have been for the disciples to have walked with Jesus, to have seen him feed the 5,000, heal the lepers, heal the blind, bend down and welcome the little children when no one else would. And now he is in the temple going crazy. That's what it would seem like, right? So let's read these, these verses again. We're on verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus curses the tree. And all of his disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem. They're going up into Jerusalem. And Jesus enters the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? Now don't hear Jesus quietly saying, guys, is it not written? No, he's loud. He's angry. Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out into the city. So Jesus, coming upon a fig tree, does something a little uncharacteristic, right? He curses the tree. Now Mark tells us that when Jesus comes upon the tree, that the tree is full of leaf, right? That the tree is blossomed and blooming. And so when he comes up on the tree and he curses it, he curses it because he could not find any fruit. And what we can't understand, but what he would have known If you lived in the Fertile Crescent in the land of Judea in that time near Jerusalem, you would have known, almost everyone would have known, that fig trees don't have fruit at this time. In fact, this fig tree should not have been blooming at all. It was early. It was early in its season, as Mark tells us. And this story, when Jesus curses the fig tree, seems a little arbitrary. Why would he do that? Is he just angry, 
right? Is it just me when I come home and I can't find the thing I want to drink in the fridge and so I, oh, grace, why didn't you go to Kroger and get what I wanted, right? Is that what Jesus is doing? No. We look next that Jesus comes into the temple and at this time, if you were a first century Jew and you were coming into the temple, you would have probably walked up to the temple mount and you would have seen a temple bustling with life and energy and enthusiasm. It would have looked like a fruitful place. Is that what Jesus found? No, he found a temple that was utterly devoid of spiritual fruit, wasn't it? He found a temple that was full of narcissistic, introspective faith, right? It was about the people, not about God. And if you know the history of the temple, this was a great tragedy because the temple was where God's people went to fellowship with God. It's how people in that time, God's people, the Jews, went to be with God. They would go and they would offer sacrifices for their sins. They would worship. They would fellowship together. This was that place. This was a great place of honor. And yet, here Jesus comes and he finds it full of death, full of spiritual death. There is no fruit here. And so when Jesus curses the fig tree and he curses the temple, he is doing the same thing. He is condemning the lack of fruit. But he's not doing it arbitrarily, and it's essential that we understand that to understand today's passage. Because if you know anything else about the story of Scripture, then you know that Jesus would say, in another gospel, Jesus says, tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. And the temple that he is referring to is himself. What the disciples wouldn't have known then, but I can only imagine they would have figured out later down the line, is that Jesus was about to replace this temple, right? The place that they had worshipped, the place that was full of no fruit at all, would be replaced by the man and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen? And that Jesus would make all things new. And so when we come to our passage today, it is in this context that Jesus teaches the disciples about a faith that receives, about a faith that is vibrant, about a faith that is prepared to do all the good that God has for it. Not a faith that takes the good that God has given it and produces no fruit. No, this is a flourishing, vibrant, healthy faith. It is a faith that trusts God, a faith that prays boldly, and a faith that forgives others. So let's look at verse 22 and talk about trusting God. Notice what Peter, as Peter sees the tree and they come upon it that next day, he says, what to Jesus? He says, Jesus, the tree is dead. And what does Jesus reply to Peter? A little bit nonsensically, he says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. What is Jesus talking about? Well, the thing that Jesus is talking about is trusting God's character and God's work. I have a question for you this morning as we read. Do you believe that God truly desires to do good in you? to do good for you, and to do good through you? Do you honestly believe that God desires to do good in you, to do good for you, and to do good through you? Because if you were one of Jesus' disciples, and maybe if, even if you're here reading this passage today, you're looking and you're saying, what good could this man be doing, right? What good is coming from cursing a fig tree, this poor little old fig tree? What good has come from this righteous anger in the temple? And yet Jesus is challenging the disciples, and he is challenging us today, to believe that he is working for our good, that this God is good, and that God's goodness is inevitable. When I thought about the inevitability of God's goodness, I thought about the Mississippi River. And if you know 
the power of the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River, like all bodies of water, are incredibly, incredibly powerful. And where they have a will, they will find a way. Amen? The Mississippi River, if you know, it's inevitable that it is always going to flow to the Gulf of Mexico. If you put your boat in the Mississippi River, you will end up in the Gulf of Mexico. If you try swimming in the Mississippi River, you will end up in the Gulf of Mexico. The current is strong and the water is sure and you cannot deny it. It is inevitable. In much the same way, God's goodness is inevitable. What God wills, God will do. What God wills, God will do. And if God tells us that God is good, that goodness is inevitable. It is inevitable and, good and remains good no matter what life brings. It doesn't matter if we find ourselves facing a mountain just like Jacob. It doesn't matter if it finds us just facing another day. Children that haven't slept through the night or maybe are sick and you can't get up or maybe a job that just seems relentless or a marriage that isn't full of hope or a body that is falling apart. Even in the face of those things, God's goodness is inevitable. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And notice this, it's not talking about us, it's talking about God. And those whom he predestined, and he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Who is at work? God is at work. We are not at work. And the narrative, the flow, the big story of God's good grace is that it continues good from beginning to end. It does not change. His work in my heart and in your heart does not change. James says it like this. Do not be, be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. God's work in our lives is inevitable, and it is good, not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of who he is and because of what he has done. In this passage, Jesus so shocks the religious leaders that it kind of it tips the mountain over. At this point, everything's going to run real fast and real heavy for Jesus. And the religious leaders of Jerusalem are going to conspire against him to condemn him. And yet, even, even when they were plotting against him, Jesus was working for their good. That'll preach, won't it? Even when they were plotting against him, Jesus was working for their good. Even when his disciples would abandon him in his moment of need, Jesus was working for their good. It is inevitable. So how do we receive this goodness? How do we put ourselves in a place to trust it? Well, I think first, we do it by doing this. What we are doing here on the Sunday morning, we come and we hear God's word. But we also do it in small groups throughout the week or in our daily quiet time. Or in my favorite way, we do it through worship. I think sometimes we have a temptation to neglect worship, or to, probably more properly to neglect the power of worship. Have you ever thought about the fact that when we worship God every Sunday together in this community, we are celebrating and lauding the goodness of a God who works on our behalf even when we want, we want no good for him. Even when we are not working on his behalf, he works for us. One of my favorite songs, and it's a song I was introduced to at the Avenue, is by, it's a rendition of an Andrew Peterson song called, Is He Worthy? 
done by Maverick City Music. And I encourage you, if you haven't heard that song before, to look it up after service. And I love that song because it's kind of a call and response. It's, is he worthy? And then the congregation, it's a series of questions. And then the congregation each time responding, he is, he is, he is. And it builds into this crescendo. And it's a reminder to us that God is good. And so when I'm in my lowest moment, when I'm having a hard day, or I just don't believe that God could be good, because don't all of us have those moments? I turn on that song, I get in my car, and I drive around, and I usually cry a little bit where no one can see me, and I reflect and I remember that God is good, that God is worthy, that he is worthy of my praise because he has loved me when I didn't love him. Amen? But that's not where Jesus stops. He doesn't just stop at trusting God. He gives the disciples a bold, bold task. And it's this task that presents the biggest frustration or difficulty in our passage. Jesus tells the disciples to pray boldly. Look at verse 24 with me. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus is speaking to Peter and the disciples. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and you will be yours. The word there in the Greek is in the aorist tense, and it means that what, when he says it, when Jesus says it, it's as if it's already been done. As you are asking it, it's as if it's already been done. And, when, and this statement by Jesus must have been hard to believe. For me, it was the thing I wrestled with most preparing this. It was, what is Jesus saying? What could he possibly be saying? And why? Why would Jesus, in this passage, choose the illustration of a mountain to represent the power of prayer? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First, if we look in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, we see that mountains are often used to highlight the power of God. In Isaiah 44 through 5, it says, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The even ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For from the mouth of the Lord it has been spoken. Or, mountains are sometimes used to represent, again, the inevitability of God's goodness and love. In Isaiah 54, he says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills may be removed, that is, all creation be leveled. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. This says the Lord who has compassion on you. So here, Jesus is challenging his audience with something that is so obviously impossible, a faith that would move a mountain, that when we pray and we ask God, if we do it with honest faith, that he will move mountains, as if it's already been done. Why would he say something like that? Well, it's to remind us and to hammer home the idea that if God wills it, God can do it. If God wills it, God can do it. Nothing is impossible for God. But there's another aspect to this. Jesus literally asked the disciples in prayer to go to God and ask for whatever they want. And I think we need to take Jesus honestly when he says that. He affirms this in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, when he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil, you who are sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. 
If you're a parent, you know that well. Yesterday, my daughter and I are driving in the car, and she says, Dad, I want a Chick-fil-A lemonade. And before I could even think to say no, because we didn't need a Chick-fil-A lemonade, I'm on my way, and I said, great, that sounds like a great idea. And she's so excited. My wife is looking at me like, why did you say that? We just had breakfast. What Jesus didn't say in this passage, but what he did say is to ask. What he didn't say is what's implied in that asking. And so I remind you to think, to think of the disciple, Jesus, or to think of the temple. Jesus walks into the temple, and like we just said, just like the fig tree, he finds a place that appears fruitful, but isn't fruitful at all, right? It's not bearing any fruit. You might say that Jesus finds a place of hollow worship, or a place that is totally misaligned from God's will. We said the Lord's Prayer just before that, and what do we say in the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done. And so the implied context in this passage is that we are to ask. We are to ask boldly, but we are to ask with a heart that is aligned with God's will. There's a Tim Keller quote, and for those of you who who know anything about Keller, you'll know that he passed this weekend, and my wife um, encouraged me. She slipped some notes into into my sermon notes, some Tim Keller quotes this morning. But there's a Tim Keller quote where he says essentially this, that for a man who's falling off a cliff, better is, or worse is little faith, or a lot of faith in a strong branch than a little faith, and better is a lot of faith in a weak branch. Do it all again, I don't have it with you, with me. (laughs) Tim Keller says this, for the man falling off a cliff, it's far worse to have a lot of faith in a weak branch than it is to have a weak faith in a strong branch, Amen. We aren't called to have a perfect faith. We're called to have a little bit of faith and trust that God is good. And then if God wills it, God will do it. And that if we have put ourselves in a position of trusting God's goodness, then we can trust that God's will is at work in our prayers. And those prayers may not come to pass. The things we ask may not come to pass in the way that we think it. If you think Jesus is crazy, just a few chapters after this, in chapter 14, he will be in the Garden of Gethsemane pleading, pleading before God that he would not kill him. Pleading so sincerely and so passionately that he sweats blood. So did God mean it? Did he mean it? Did Jesus mean it when he said that anything we pray, if we have faith, then it's as if it's already done? Yes, he meant it. What implied in this is that we ought to pray Pray boldly and trust in the will of God. Trust that God is at work. And if you don't believe me that this is the right way of, believe, or of seeing it, I have this illustration. If you, if you were to know me a little bit or you were to spend any time with me, you would quickly learn that I love science fiction. Um, and one of my favorite tropes in science fiction is time travel. Are we familiar with the idea of time travel? If you're reading any story or you're watching any, any movie, any TV show, and this It's true for years and years and years and years, as long as we've been thinking about time travel, this little dilemma always comes up. Whoever's in the future always has this idea, well, if I go back and I fix this thing that's wrong, then maybe it'll fix this problem in the here and now, right? Is that how that works? No. And every single one of those stories, the person from the future goes back, they fix something, even something they think is benign, they return to the future and they find what? That chaos and confusion have erupted, that everything that they thought they were leaving is no longer there. And so can you imagine what it would be like if God let you and I simply name it and claim it? 
If he just let us, whatever we wanted, we could just say, that's what I want, I want to have. Would that be a good world? Would that be a good God? No, we live in a world of chaos and confusion. We already have so much power and influence over our world, and look what we've done. No, instead, in prayer, we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the will of God, praying boldly to a God who is in control and praising him that we are not in control. Paul says in Colossians 1 that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by, him all, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created in him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is in control. Even in this moment, in the temple and with the fig tree when everything seems out of control. God is good. Christ is doing a good work. When we pray boldly, we do so knowing that Jesus is sovereignly in control and that that's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that it won't be hard. Jesus is challenging us to pray bold prayers. He is encouraging us to ask God to remove the mountains from our lives. A faith that receives trust that God is good and asks that God to do incredible things. Like Jacob a trust, a faith that receives, clings to God and does not let go until it receives its blessing. That means we may wrestle in prayer for years. We may not see what God is doing in the middle of our cancer. We may not see what God is doing in the middle of a divorce. We may not see what God is doing when a child is struggling at school or again when they won't sleep through the night, a problem I know well. But if we cling to God, if we wrestle with God, then we can be sure Because remember, we have trusted in God's goodness. We can be sure that if God wills it, God will do it. And that God's good and that he is in control. Jesus is challenging us. Challenging us not to doubt. To pray without doubting. And as James says, for one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that that man must not suppose that he will receive anything from God. We must pray boldly. And there's one final little thing that Jesus throws in on the end here. And as I prepared for this sermon, I was tempted many, many, many times to just be like, well, we could just kind of skip those last verses, right? We could skip the very end. But as I studied and as I wrestled with these verses, I realized we can't skip that at all. That's essential to what God is saying. And it's at the very end that he says that a faith that receives forgives others. Look with me now at that last verse. Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. At first glance, it looks like that's just arbitrarily tapped onto the end, right? It's just stuck in. But what does forgiveness have to do with a faith that receives, a faith that trusts God, a faith that trusts God, and a faith that prays boldly? Well, in the Old Testament, the Lord establishes the temple. Remember, the Lord establishes the temple through Moses and Aaron. We've talked about it as a place where God's people can come to be forgiven of their sin. A place where they can come and worship their God. It's at the the heart of the temple that the purpose of, of being with God is repentance and forgiveness. When Jesus overturns the temple, he is not only raging against the ways that the people have turned worship into a financial gain. He is raging against the people who have forgotten and are therefore not receiving the blessing of fellowship with a gracious and forgiving God. 
Several years ago, when I first came to the Avenue, we, we didn't have a youth director, and so I, I, my background is in youth ministry, and I stepped in with our youth, and I was trying to figure out, what are we going to study with the youth? And I came upon a verse in Exodus that some of you may be familiar with. It's Exodus 34, 6 through 7. And as, I read, as we reflected on that verse, we spent an entire year studying this verse and talking about what it might mean. And as I reflected on it, I just became more and more convinced Understanding this verse unlocks so much of what the Bible is seeking to teach us. And this is what it says. It says, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. And unless we are convinced that our God stops there, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. And Exodus isn't talking about a bipolar God. It's talking about a just and gracious God that is unlike any other God of any other religion you will find anywhere else in all of human history. It is a God that we can put our full faith and trust in to forgive us. And that putting that full trust and faith in him to forgive us, we can also know that that God does not leave sin unpunished. Jesus marched his way to Jerusalem because that God would not let sin go unpunished. Jesus was crying out, praying a bold prayer to God in the Garden of Gethsemane because that God would not leave sin unpunished. And yet through a God who would willingly sacrifice his own son because he was that just, you and I can receive a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, forgiving, wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. And brothers and sisters, if we can receive that kind of forgiveness, shouldn't we also forgive our brothers and sisters? Shouldn't we also forgive those who are, have wronged us? And this is not a forgiveness, if, unless we be confused, that has to deny justice. It's a, forgi- it's a forgiveness that lets go of justice and puts it in God's hands. It's a forgiveness that fully trusts and the fact that God is good, that God is just, that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so at the heart of God's promise, at the heart of his gospel, is the message that he will forgive our iniquities, that he will forgive our sin, that he will redeem us, his people, that he will keep his promises. When he exhorts us to forgive, he is again affirming that a faith that receives is a faith that aligns with the will of God, a faith that looks like God, demonstrates a heart that has been changed by God. It is not a fruitless temple or a fruitless tree. It is a fruit-bearing heart, a fruit-bearing life. And one of those fruits is forgiveness. Faith that receives forgives because faith that receives has trusted a powerful God to do powerful things. Do you believe that promise? Earlier, I asked you a question. I asked you, do you believe that God desires to do good in you, through you, and for you? And that's a hard, hard question to answer. Because we may say this morning that, yeah, of course I believe that. Why wouldn't I believe that? But I have no doubt that at some point this week, maybe it's just after you leave here and you get in bumper-to-bumper traffic on Poplar or you hit one of those potholes or the right lane is just a little too skinny, you'll go, God's not good. Or maybe another thing happens in Memphis that makes us all question, is our God in control and what is this place he has put me? Maybe you get a call after church and something terrible has happened 
Or maybe you just go home and you're alone again for another Sunday afternoon and you're wondering, is God really good? Is it true that God would do good through me, for me, and in me? Brothers and sisters, this passage, if it convinces me of nothing else, convinces me that yes and amen. Jesus would not, could not, did not tell his disciples to pray boldly with the faith that receives if there was nothing to receive, if there was not a good God, a God that was so amazingly good, so much more magnificently good than we could ever imagine. So as we leave here today, as we end our time of worship together, my encouragement to you is to go home with that truth. Go home trusting that you worship a good God. And if you don't believe it, open your Bible, start at Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, and read and read and read. You want a story of God's goodness? Go to the Exodus story itself and read of God's people in slavery in Egypt for 300 years with no faith that they would be delivered. When God sends a deliverer, they scoff and see how that God works. Turn forward to the end of Mark and see how a people who have abandoned and mocked and crucified their God and Savior Jesus Christ find redemption and healing through the resurrection. Jesus has told us, his brothers and sisters, that when we pray in accordance with God's will, we should act as if we have already received it. Why? Because the God we trust in is a God who is working in us and through us and for us to greater things than we can even imagine. Amen? Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.